and welcome to the Kidney Cast. I'm Laura Morris. And I'm Ari Deckard. This is our podcast where I interview Ari about his experiences with Alport syndrome, his three kidney transplants, and all the other medical stuff that's happened to him during his life. In our last episode, Ari, we talked about this scary situation where you had to be taken to the emergency room mm-hmm. from central Washington because of this really bad rebound reaction you had to your blood pressure medications, yes. or to the absence of your blood pressure medications. Right. And in the past several episodes, we've talked about this blood pressure situation. We've been talking about these really terrible stomach problems you were having. We've talked about mm-hmm. liver issues and tests and yeah. other things. And one of the things we haven't talked about was your kidney function during this time, <laughs> right. your second transplant. So we're going to pick up the story after you leave the hospital in the emergency room and go back to central Washington Mm-hmm. after this blood pressure issue, but how was your kidney function at this time? My kidney function was not great. It wasn't terrible, but it was slightly to somewhat elevated. My numbers, specifically the creatinine number, creatinine is a chemical that doctors and kidney patients look at specifically for kidney function. At the time, it had just continued to very slowly edge upwards. And that had been true for about two and a half years at that point, and it was just more elevated than it should have been and that was normal, but it was basically still okay. They were far more concerned, they, all of my doctors and medical people, and I were far more concerned with my blood pressure issues, with, I guess the liver was considered sort of a solved or a resolved issue by that time. But with those kind of things and my ongoing occasional stomach stuff. So this blood pressure incident happened in the winter at Central Washington. Yeah, the beginning of second semester. It would have been second or third week of the semester. So you go back and how's your health doing then? Once I got out of the hospital, pretty good. You know, I was just... I was back into the swing of things. I'd missed a week, and I was like, okay, but wait, let's get back on track. No problem. It was doing all right. And it's interesting to me to hear you describe this this way, because I remember a couple years ago looking at photos of you, because friends would tag (laughs) you on Facebook, of your time at Central Washington. Yeah. And being shocked at how you looked, because you looked terrible at the time. And it was one of those things where you get very used to things day to day. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think that I probably got very used to you looking really sick. Mm-hmm. And yeah. you don't look like that anymore. <laughs> and seeing you, I just thought, oh, Ari looks terrible in that photo. He, he looks close to death. He just, <laughs> there's no, there's no color. You're the, there's not light behind your eyes. It looks like you're barely holding yourself up standing in this university hallway. Yeah. I, I'm glad you mentioned that because I, I've looked at those pictures too. And every time I do, I'm shocked. I really don't look healthy I in all the ways you said, and it's kind of amazing because I didn't feel terrible. I felt kind of okay, and I was doing pretty well. You know, I was doing well in my classes. I was understanding what was going on. I was getting good grades. Uh, I was, at least to my memory, for the most part, a, an active, valuable member of all the ensembles I was in. I was doing stuff. I was being a, a productive member of of the, the studio and the school. But then, um, <laughs> but then things started to get worse. And 
I, I feel like I should preface this part of the story by saying that I have very, very few and only scattered memories of this six-month time period that we're talking about, from about January to June. And it'll become clear why, but if I sound confused or unsure, that that's why. That at this point, what I'm talking about, like I said, I do have some scattered memories, but me telling this story is mostly from knowledge of that time period rather than memory. Yeah, and I think in the name of transparency, yeah, we should say this is actually the story that we've been the most nervous to talk about as we've been preparing mm-hmm. this podcast, and it's the one that usually we sit down, I have the questions prepared because I know what happened during this era of your <laughs> yeah. life and we go through it. This is the first time you and I have talked off mic about, okay, how are we going to deal with this story? Pretty extensively, yeah. And when we originally made the document for the podcast, like, okay, let's get together. What what kind of stories could there be? The note next to this was, do we want to talk about this? <laughs> uh, yeah. And, and the thing is, I think we're both fine talking about it. We just never do. Um, for my part, that's largely because, um, it's so weird. Uh, it's just a, a weird, dramatic story. Uh, I'm a little weirdly embarrassed by it, even though I don't have very much agency at all during this time period that we're about to talk about. And because of the weirdness, I, I apologize for setting this up this way, but because it's so weird, I feel like this is one of the prime examples of what we've discussed in the past, where this is the kind of story where if you just tell somebody, it's dumping a lot on them, even if they have a lot of background already, because I'm completely fine. All of these things happened, and I'm here. I'm okay. There are not very many lasting effects from this time period. But because it's so big and dramatic and sometimes very odd, it's a lot for somebody to just kind of come in on the middle of and have to, like, negotiate with. But for me, it was years ago, and it's over. Yeah, and I I do feel similarly in that we're talking about something that was nearly a decade ago. Yeah. And you're okay now. Yeah. One of the things that I've been nervous about in talking about it, and I think one of the reasons that I just... Even with really people who are close to me, I don't talk about this very much. And I'm going to here because you're going to need some help with parts of the story. Yeah. Um, I know that in telling this, there are people or a person who's going to come off looking bad in my telling. Mm -hmm. And I worry about that being fair because they're not here to share their side of anything. Yeah. And so I feel an obligation to be fair, but it's something that because it was so hard and traumatic, it's very hard for me to talk about dispassionately. Yeah. And I don't want to work myself up into kind of a frothy, angry, or sad or upset state. I want to tell a story fairly and not say anything bad about somebody that I don't think is true or unfair to them. Right, right. So I think we're going to dive in. Yeah, so with that set up that... Uh, exists. My health had was going okay, but had been getting worse. My creatinine had been going up. This was a time period when 
I think anybody who went to school with me, especially in the music department, remembers that I had regular phone conversations during the day, like in a, a couple of very specific hallways. There were jokes that I made myself about Ari's sort of phone booth because Ellensburg gets very cold. And so there were those sort of double doors and I would hang out between the two to have a little bit of privacy, but not have to be outside in the cold. And I would be on the phone sometimes with you, but pretty often, at least once a week, if not more often, with my nurse at OHSU about what my health was like, how my blood results had been, how I was feeling, because she was trying to really focus on what was going on with me and make sure she was giving me the full amount of attention I needed in case something went downhill fast. So my creatinine kept going up. My blood pressure was pretty high this whole time. And my stomach problems really came to the forefront again. I started really being in a lot of pain regularly and having other GI symptoms. I don't remember throwing up, but I was definitely having lots of other stuff going on. I was in serious discomfort to pain pretty often. Yeah, sometimes you just wouldn't eat because you were afraid of the pain. Right, right. So I started losing weight as well, which is not good. So I, I went back into the hospital in Portland. This um, was probably close to spring break at Central Washington. Yes. And when I got into the hospital, there were two main concerns from their perspective. One was the GI stuff, the gastrointestinal, all the stomach issues, and the physical pain and discomfort I was in. And the other was my blood pressure. And I kind of think that my main concern was the stomach stuff, because I was in discomfort. And the doctor's main concern seemed to be with my blood pressure. So they changed around a bunch of my meds again. I think maybe added some. I had already been on about three or four blood pressure medications, which is quite a bit. Uh, blood pressure is important if you're a kidney transplant patient, I should mention, because the health of your blood vessels is important to the health of your kidney because they interact. Uh, so they were very concerned about that. And so they kind of felt like the creatinine issue, the kidney function issue, was secondary to the other two things. So I was in the hospital, I was in a lot of pain, and they changed around some of my meds. And I started experiencing the world differently, I think is a really mild, general way of saying it. Yeah. But I grew more and more paranoid over several days. and. At first, I just sort of felt strange um, in that kind of in that way. <laughs> but then I started to really notice it, that I was kind of paranoid and scared. And then the paranoia continued to grow and I started hallucinating. Um, and I'm saying this mostly in retrospect. At the time, there was a part of me that sometimes knew that I was hallucinating and sometimes didn't know for sure, but really hoped that I was hallucinating. So an early thing that happened, I was lying in bed late at night, and I saw a gondola pass the window. And you were on what, like the fourth or fifth floor? I was going to say eighth. Yeah. And it wasn't just that a gondola went flying by, it was a line drawing of a gondola that went flying by. And you know, that's kind of funny, but while I recognized that that could not possibly be real, it didn't seem like I was imagining it either. And it was a real weird experience to have 
looking out the window, seeing this thing, feeling like it had physical mass, like it existed in the world, but knowing that it was impossible. Yeah, and I think this is part of sometimes why it's hard to tell this story, is that we say... Ari started hallucinating, and it becomes maybe a funny drug trip story. Oh, right. you saw these things that weren't there. And I'm sure that some people have those stories. Mm -hmm. And they are either interesting or funny to them. Yeah, I kind of have some of those. Yeah, there are some stories where, <laughs> oh, hey, they gave you IV Benadryl, and you had a trippy time. Right, this is not that This time. is not that. And it, it starts this way and gets worse. Yeah. Uh, so that happened, and that was real weird. Uh, I'm not sure I told anybody at the time. You told us, yeah. About the gondola thing, and we all kind of laughed uncomfortably. And I think that that's an example of I was covering, though, when I told people, because I wanted it to be sort of a funny drug story. Like, can you believe this? But I was unable to portray how also terrifying it was, because I was still very paranoid. Sort of, the paranoia wasn't attached to anything. I was just sort of generally nervous and anxious and um, scared but not of anything specifically yet. Uh, and seeing this thing, I, I could not describe to anyone accurately that while I knew that it couldn't have been real, it, was, it felt completely real, that I had serious cognitive dissonance about it. Um, I, I kind of feel like heading into some of these, these later things too, I, I should maybe pause a little bit and say, I like to think at least that one of the benefits I had was that I am a pretty grounded person, at least sometimes. I am a huge, huge fan of many, many science fiction and fantasy stories and ideas. That's the kind of fiction I prefer and have preferred basically my whole life. One of my very first memories is of my father reading me, not The Hobbit, but The Lord of the Rings, with <laughs> voices and explanations, and I was like two. That's been a steady part of my life, and I'm you know, conversant in those things. But when I have daydreamed or fantasized about things, even as a fairly small child, there was a part of me that was like, yeah, but that doesn't work because. And the part of me that does the, yeah, that doesn't work because sometimes helped me here. So when I say there was a part of me, at least sometimes, that knew it couldn't have been real, that's the part of me I'm talking about. Because after seeing this gondola and sort of telling my family, and I, I guess I must have told my doctors, I, I don't know. Then things got weirder and scarier. Um, in no particular order, because I, I'm not sure about the sequence of events here, I had, this is over the course of probably a, a week, I had what seemed like a dream but couldn't possibly have been a dream. So I had this, I guess, vision it felt kind of like a dream, but kind of not at the time, like a lot of this stuff did. But I had lots of family all over the country, um, and I was approached by someone, I think one of my doctors, but it might have just been some kind of generic agent person, and that person had also gone and spoken to my family members. And I saw this happening, which is part of why that part of me knew, okay, this can't be real, but it felt very, very real. And they had told all of us, hey, we know you want to go be with Ari in the hospital. And so we have this cool new technology. Isn't it very exciting where you can just be transported and you can go back and forth very easily. 
And everybody thought, oh, this is such a great idea. Sure, let's do it. And then something went horribly wrong because it turned out that while we had been told that it was sort of a teleportation kind of thing, it actually involved transporting their bodies through the plumbing. Now, of course, this sounds ridiculous. It sounded ridiculous even at the time as I was experiencing it being extremely real. And so what happened was, you know, that's physically impossible, but they had some tech that modified that or something. And the problem was that my family members, as they were trying to come through the pipes, like basically through my sink in my room, um, they started expanding too early. And so I heard all these family members of mine um, screaming in the pipes um, as they were hurt and expanding and being crushed and dying. In particular, I saw my parents who had, I think, come through first. Um, they had managed to get almost all the way to me and their heads had come through, but then when they... They went to expand early because there was a problem with the technology or however this story worked in my brain. And so what I saw was their heads in my sink. Uh, and that's just a really terrifying, awful image that I knew couldn't be real, but a huge part of me had experienced it as completely real. And then, of course, the next morning... There was no sign in my room, and I had experienced it as real. I, I was just terrified and panicked and really, really frightened. And I started to have, I guess, then a focus for my paranoia, <laughs> that there was some kind of nefarious thing going on, and it was specifically focused around my doctors doing something, because what I, I started to quote-unquote realize was that this whole transportation thing was actually not a mistake that everybody had been trapped in the pipes and killed, but that it was actually the plan all along. And so I became very, very afraid. I was incredibly vulnerable. You are vulnerable in the hospital, and I had IVs in. And I yeah, I was just really, really terrified. I saw at one point actual black helicopters outside my window. And I remember thinking to myself, really black helicopters? <laughs> that has got to be the most cliche thing. Because if this is real, how ridiculous. Because come on, people, that's the most conspiracy theory, nutty standard thing that people think. But I saw them. I became convinced that the balloons that somebody had sent me that said get well soon and one of them was a smiley face were watching me um the smiley face obviously get well soon was not watching me and not like it had a camera in it but like it was some kind of biological or semi-biological entity that was watching me and um i think you can fill in a little bit more of this but i remember texting you a picture of it, I think, or just texting you and saying, I think this is not real, but it's scary. Yeah, it was becoming very apparent after the kind of ha-ha funny gondola story 
that whatever was going on with you mentally was getting worse and more distressing. And I started becoming very afraid and anxious every night when I had to leave the hospital and go home. Mm -hmm. And I would start to get text messages from you telling me they're doing experiments on me. They're taking me down to the basement. And yeah, one of the times I came to visit you in the morning, you had taken several minutes of video on your phone of these balloons just sitting there on the video mm-hmm. that you were emphatically telling me proved whatever point you thought that this proved with the balloons. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think we have that video anymore. Um, and you were a really big help during that time in several ways. Uh, one was that when you were there, at least sometimes, your presence and having you to focus on allowed me somehow to not have maybe as many (laughs) paranoid delusions and hallucinations as I was having when you weren't there. The other thing was after we had had that, I'm going to say, conversation about the balloons, you wrote a note on the whiteboard in the hospital room. Right. Hospital rooms often have a big whiteboard to kind of Here's what day it is. Here's the name of the patient. Here's the nurse who's on duty right, right now and the the tech and kind of just a daily whiteboard to keep track of some things. Mm-hmm. And so on the entire available space on this whiteboard that wasn't taken up by that information, I wrote you a note because you were losing track of reality quite a bit. Yeah. And so it was for if you woke up during the middle of the night and I wasn't there. And it said something like, Ari, you're in the hospital. Everything's okay your family's okay, and I'm going to be back as soon as I can. And then I signed my name really big in the most distinctive me way I could, so you'd know it was my note. Yeah, and it was helpful. There were a few nights, I think, where I said to myself, well, they faked that. But it it was another way to try to ground myself. There was another thing, uh probably because I was having delusions um, that the medical staff was at least somewhat aware of. I'm not sure how much. I was telling them every day. Okay, so really aware of it. There is a a kind of bed alarm that can be used in a hospital to make sure like somebody hasn't fallen out of bed or if they're not supposed to get out of bed to keep track of when the bed is occupied. And there's an alarm that goes off when there isn't pressure on that sensor. And I've had these several times. All the other times were for physical issues. But during this time, it was because they were concerned that I might get out of bed or do something nutty, for lack of an actual word. And those cause problems because you just shift in bed and the alarm goes off and then somebody comes running in. But That alarm went off every time you changed positions. Every time. But what that means is if I needed to get out of bed, which I I was allowed to do, to go to the bathroom, to walk around or something, I had to call a nurse because they were a little bit concerned about my physical steadiness. But I had to call somebody so that they knew if the alarm goes off, that's what's up. So I had called a nurse and she came. Again, this was deep in the middle of the night and helped me out of bed so I could get to the bathroom and we were sort of stumbling 
to the bathroom and she was behind me and the IV pole kind of caught on this lip that was on the floor between the the hospital room proper and the bathroom. And it tipped and it bonked me on the back of the head. And I use bonk because it was a bonk. It wasn't like a smack or a smash or something overly painful, but it, it was noticeable. And I can say with full confidence that that's exactly what happened. But in the moment when I felt that on my head, I'd already felt a little bit worried about her coming into the room, and I'd felt a little bit worried about the fact that she was behind me as I went into the bathroom, which is a very strange thing for me to feel. And when I felt that tube touch the back of my head, I'm not going to say convinced, because I wasn't convinced. I immediately knew that she was trying to kill me with the IV pole, which is a hard thing to say, because obviously she was not. But with that full knowledge and the emotional reaction that goes with it, because I was both terrified and furious, I turned around and looked at her, I think with all of that terror and fury on my face. And I had a flash of clarity when I saw her expression, because she looked mortified and afraid. And I don't you know, I don't know what my face looked like, but I know it has to have been very scary and probably crazy. Uh, and she looked really, really afraid. I think she said, I'm, I'm, I'm really sorry, and sort of stammered like that. And she stepped back, and I righted the IV pole, and I think she left. And I went and used the bathroom and made it back to bed just fine. And I never saw that nurse again. I presume that she was probably on shift but had I been in her position, I also would have asked not to uh, need to go into that particular patient's room. And it was, it, was a, it was a small thing. And afterwards, in that after that moment, I kind of knew I don't think she was trying to do anything bad because I'd had that, that brief moment of clarity and seeing her face and realizing that she was just sort of confused and it was obviously a mistake. And I knew it had hit the lip of the floor. But I still had really felt that in the moment, and I knew it. And it was yet another time, like all these times where I was having these experiences that felt very, very real, and I knew what was happening was one thing. But then there was a part of me that said, but that can't be right. And it was just immensely confusing. And I keep using the word terrifying, and I feel like I don't know of a stronger, better, different word. It was so frightening and confusing and disorienting, in addition to the fact that I was on all these meds, including pain meds that put me to sleep, that made me feel, you know, a little bit separated from reality because they're opioids. And it was a really, really disorienting, frightening, frightening, frightening time. Do you remember telling me that your parents, your real parents were dead and that the people visiting you in the hospital every day had been were robots that were replacing them. <laughs> uh, no, I don't remember that. But you saying that reminds me that, yeah, that was how I managed, like the delusional part of me managed the, the idea that I had seen my parents killed, but then my parents showed up the next day. Do you remember telling me that they were experimenting on you? Not at all. And that they were like taking you into the basement and piling things on top of you? No, that one's weird. Um, I have no memory of that, no. Do you remember telling me that you thought that there were people in your hospital room watching us? Yes. I should mention that 
I was in the hospital at this time for about six weeks. This is definitely the longest stay I've ever had in the hospital. And at that point, they had moved me to a different room, and I had this very strange idea that there were very, very, very small people, um, about a foot tall, that were hiding around the room. And at this point, because I, I did not trust the doctors, I thought that they were sort of putting on a good face, but were doing experiments and doing things and trying to hide things from me. At this point, I felt like we were playing this sort of game. Like, I know that you're doing bad things and that you're spying on me, and you know that you're doing bad things and spying on me, and you suspect that I know that you know, but I was not supposed to let them know that I knew. Because if I did, I thought, or I felt... Really, I knew that, that that would be an excuse that worse things might happen. That might put you, Lara, in danger. That might put me in actual danger. That as long as I sort of help them maintain the illusion, in some cases from you, in some cases from my parents who might have been replaced with robots or might just be innocents, that if I let anybody know what I knew and disturb the illusion they were trying to project that we could all be in danger. And so, uh, did I mention that I was paranoid? Uh, so there were these very small people somehow who were very fragile and were hidden around my room. And every day there were a few more of them. I think at first there was like one in the plant. And then one of the slightly more specific memories I have is that there were four or five and even one was kind of hidden under the covers uh, with me and somebody came in and like sat on them where I knew they were and I could hear them sort of being muffled and um, crushed and I couldn't say anything. It's very strange, obviously, but um, that was a thing that was going on too. Yeah. And I think here is where I should talk a little bit about what was going on outside of your delusions. I Yeah, I think so. So... When you weren't just being totally paranoid or completely tight-lipped around your parents or doctors, who you were incredibly suspicious of, and sometimes I was starting to feel like you were growing suspicious of me, too, you were in serious pain. When you weren't delusional, you were sleeping. Right. And you were sleeping most of the day because of the pain meds you were on. You were in serious pain. You still couldn't take food, so you were getting nutrition via IV. Mm-hmm. And they could not fix what was wrong with your stomach. They were trying all kinds of things. Right. And your kidney function was sinking. Yeah. The numbers were terrible and getting worse. And I remember while you were sleeping, you, you were unconscious most of the time. And I was there. Your parents were there pretty much all the time. Yeah. Your doctor coming in and saying, we figured out what's causing the stomach issue. It's one of the immunosuppressants Ari is on. Yeah. And at this point, his digestive system is so torn up because of his reaction to this drug, we need to take him off all of the immunosuppressants so that he can heal. Mm -hmm. And that means that his kidney, which is already not doing well, is going to fail. Yeah. And you were not awake for this conversation. <laughs> right. And so your parents 
approved that course of action, which was the right course of action. Yeah, I would have approved it too. But I remember feeling very disturbed that a decision of this magnitude and several decisions were being made this time while you were just unconscious, but when you were so addled on drugs that I did not think that you knew what was going on or what was happening. No, and I I was not competent to make medical decisions for myself at that time. I I hope that's obvious from what I've described so far. Uh, to say that I was like out of it is an, a wild understatement. I, there was just nothing that I think I should have been trusted with. Um, I, I suppose it would have been nice to know. And, and they did tell me when I woke up, or maybe not that day, but they told me of that and I was sad, but I said, yeah, that's the right thing. Do you remember being told that your kidney had failed? I, I don't remember that. I just know that they did tell me. So they took you off these medications and your stomach did start to heal. And yeah. your kidney, your transplant from Michael failed. Yeah. And so you were still in the hospital healing from the stomach stuff and they were giving you dialysis in the hospital. Yes. Yeah, the specific drug that was causing the problem was one of my three immunosuppressants. It's called sirolimus, and it turned out that I basically developed an allergy to it, and that's what had been going on that entire time with my stomach. So, yeah, they had figured that out, and then I was on dialysis, but I was also still having um, this altered mental state. Right, and that was starting to get worse. Right, it starts with, isn't that funny, there's a gondola outside, and it's escalating to, my whole family is dead. These people are robots. Everyone's spying on me. They're doing experiments on me. And so while your digestive system was healing yeah, and your kidney had failed, and I didn't get any impression that you actually knew or appreciated that that had happened yet. Yeah. Well, and it's not like one day your kidney fails, but yeah, it was. I was in kidney failure. But your mental state was just getting worse. Mm -hmm. And I had been hoping every day it would get better. Yeah. And I'd been telling your medical team, he's having these delusions, he's paranoid, he's telling me terrible things, he is traumatized and afraid. Mm -hmm. It isn't ha-ha funny drug trip, ha-ha funny he's seeing silly things, he's in serious distress, and he doesn't trust you, and I don't think that he's competent or understands any of the medical things that are happening to him. Yeah, that's all entirely true. Uh, I didn't, really, and I... You know, I like being able to follow that kind of stuff. And I, I told, I was going to say, for sure, like I know this, I don't know this, but I'm almost certain I did not tell any medical professional any of this stuff about my mental state. I only told my parents some of it, and you know it, but I don't think I told you all of those things at the time. You were telling, you told me. Okay. And nothing was changing, and you weren't getting better. Right. And at this point, you know, these major decisions are being made. They were talking about what kind of dialysis to put you on, because somebody suggested you might switch to peritoneal. And that was incredibly upsetting to me, because you and I had had a discussion where you told me, I never want to do peritoneal dialysis. It freaked right. you out. You didn't want it. <laughs> yeah. And you were completely powerless to object. Mm -hmm. um, another doctor said, that's impossible. He can't do that. His stomach and di his whole digestive area is way too compromised for us to do peritoneal dialysis. Okay. And so your parents said, okay, no. 
Again, I would always trust your parents to make the right decision. Yeah. If, if I were incapacitated, it was just one of those things where it seemed like the medical team saw you as this screw up kid mm-hmm. from a long time ago who was out of it all the time. And they were treating your parents like the patient and you like a prop. <laughs> I can see that. Yeah. And I, I, I will say like every decision that I know my parents made is the decision I would have wanted them to make. You know, like I agree with you that they are, are people that I do and have trusted with my life and they've made all the right calls. But yeah, it's, it's not a thing you want to have happen when you're in your like late twenties. You know, I, it, in that particular situation for those six weeks or so, I was absolutely mentally incompetent, but usually that's not true. Um, I have, pretty informed opinions about my own health and um i you know would like those those ideas to be followed and generally speaking i sh- they should be in this particular instance though i needed somebody else to do that and that's had i been more aware that would have been difficult for me and obviously it was hard for you to see so your doctor came in to do rounds kind of later in the evening and your parents were not there they had left to go home and you were asleep Right. So I was the only person to interface with. Mm-hmm. And I told him, Ari is having these paranoid delusions. They're not getting better. What medication is it that he's on that's causing this? Mm-hmm. And he looked right at me and said, none of the medications Ari is on would cause that. Yeah. And I said, that cannot be true. <laughs> <laughs> and I started to freak out. Yeah. Because he just confidently said no. None of the medications. And I said, Ari is not mentally ill. Ari is not a paranoid person. Ari does not see things that aren't there. And it would be a crazy, impossible coincidence that the moment he came in this hospital and you changed his medications, he simultaneously lost his mind. Right. And I begged him, could you look at the list again? Could you just double check? Maybe it's a very rare side effect. And he just said no. And I started to cry. I I was sobbing. And I begged him. And he just stared at me. And I said, it can't be. There has to be something that causes this. He didn't just crazy coincidence Mm -hmm. go go nuts upon being admitted into this hospital. He's he's not mentally ill. Something's causing this. And I was crying and trying to present my evidence to him. And he didn't, this is so weird, he didn't respond. He didn't tell me anything. He just stared at me. Yeah. And it went on for minutes. I just kept crying and telling him that it had to be something and no response. I couldn't tell what he was thinking or if he was thinking anything. Yeah. And he just stared at me. And then after a few minutes passed, he looked at me and said something like, okay, see you tomorrow. And then turned around and left me there. Yeah, that's awful. And the I felt like, am I going crazy too? Right. What what just happened? And I could see the parallels. Like, here you were in your world of paranoia and delusion, telling me that your doctor was experimenting on you and doing these crazy things to you. And here I was in the real world, and I realized this is the person taking care of Ari, and I have lost all confidence in them. Yeah. So the next day, mm-hmm. they took you to do more dialysis. Yes. 
and you were again pretty much out of it, kind of half conscious. Mm -hmm. You were on the machine and napping, kind of. Okay. And you sort of woke up and started trying to pull the needles and tubes out of your arm while the machine was running. Yeah, and I have a vague memory of, of this. Um, I don't remember what it was that I was dreaming, hallucinating, etc. Uh, about, but there was a very specific reason I needed to do that. Um, and when I woke up, I whoever it was that physically stopped me... That was me. <laughs> was you. Thank you. That snapped me out of it. I realized, oh, because everybody was... People come running when that happens. Alarms started to going off. Alarms started to go off. Uh, Texts came running. A doctor came running. You were there. And they were all like, ah, what are you doing? You know, there was a lot of energy directed my way. And... You know, I had done dialysis for years. I knew exactly what was up, and I was like, <laughs> I kind of looked down and like, oh, my hand is on the tubes, and I'm pulling, oh, well, that's not right. You know, and I, I stopped, and I was snapped out, and I think, like, it took me less time to fix the problem than for other people to realize I had fixed it, but that's fine. They needed to be really on top of it. Yeah, you were trying to pull the needles out of your arm. Okay. And I saw what you were doing, and I grabbed your hand, and then with my other hand, I just pushed you by the chest back into the chair. Oh, okay. And you looked at me so angry and so distrustfully, like, and I could see it in your face, like, oh, I betrayed you, I'm in on the conspiracy. Yeah, yeah. And you were on dialysis for several more hours. <laughs> <laughs> and during that time, um, one of the surgeons came to visit you. And okay. you had a surgeon on your team because with all the stomach and digestive stuff that had been going on, when they were still trying to solve the mystery, they thought some, that he might need to have surgery. We want a surgeon around. Yeah, of course. So he came by basically to tell you, well, now that we've switched you off these meds, I don't think you're going to need any surgery. I think you're going to heal up. Yeah, I can't remember that. And he was having this conversation with you. It was about 10 minutes long. And I was sitting there thinking, Ari is so out of it. He has no idea what this guy's telling him. Right. Yeah. I, when I say I kind of remember that, like, I think I should remember that and I can picture it. So probably. And so he finished his whole spiel <laughs> and he did that thing they always do, which is, okay, so if you guys have any other questions. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I said, yes. Uh huh. And I repeated the whole issue to him. And I was very emphatic. I said, Ari has never had a history of mental illness. Ari has never seen things that aren't there. He is being paranoid. He thinks people are experimenting on him. He is seeing lots of things that aren't there. He's seeing heads in his sink. Please check one of his medications is causing that. Mm. And the surgeon went, okay. And he looked at your chart and immediately, immediately he said, yeah. oh, it's this blood pressure medication he's on. I'll take him off that. Wow. And I don't think I had a very good poker face. <laughs> I was really mad and yeah. really upset and so scared for you. And I th I think probably he could see. I was very, very emotional. Yeah. So he sat down and he said, okay, here's how it's going to work. I'm taking him off it right now. It has this kind of half-life, so it's going to take several days for it to be completely out of his system. So yeah. he'll keep seeing things. And he was so compassionate and on top of it and telling me what would happen. And I could not believe that the night before that man had told me that 
none of your medications caused this because this surgeon knew immediately. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to skip ahead a bit in your chronological story to explain more of this. But soon after this incident in the hospital, you got a new doctor. Yeah. And as part of the whole process for getting a new doctor, he was looking at your charts and he looked at your medication list and his eyes bugged out. Yeah, that I remember. Yeah. And he said, why are you on these medications? He, he seemed like <laughs> upset about it. Yeah. Well, and as a patient, you don't have any. I, my doctor said, you know. And he said, you're on way too many medications. Yeah. And some of these medications are so old and they're so bad for you. They have such terrible side effects. I didn't think anybody prescribed these medications anymore. They're dangerous and they're old. Yeah. And so he said, I'm going to take you off these medications quickly and as safely as I can because mm -hmm. of the rebound effects. And your blood pressure, we're just going to try to manage through diet. Yeah. And we did. And it was fine. Yeah. He took you off all these terrible medications. It turned out you didn't really have a blood pressure problem. It turned out maybe you had a doctor problem. Yeah. I mean, I have a family history of hypertension. It didn't seem in any way out of the ordinary to anyone, to either of my parents, who both have high blood pressure, to their parents, all of whom, I think, had high blood pressure, to me. Um, hypertension and kidney disease are often closely linked. It was a very natural thing. It was a little unusual that I was on four, or I think at one point, five separate blood pressure medications. But, you know, I'm really sick. One of the medications he took you off was the blood pressure patch that could yeah. have killed you in Ellensburg. Right. We tapered that. So I think what it's fair to say from my perspective, okay. your doctor, the one that you had during these incidents, mm -hmm. was pretty old. Yes. Past an age when many people retire. He had serious health problems of his own. And I think that he was not staying on top of the science and research in this field. And I think either he didn't know or had forgotten the side effects of the drugs he was prescribing you. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. And it it's a tough thing for me because that's a doctor who I had trusted, who I had a pretty close relationship with for a really long time at that point. And I worry telling this because I think that we've told a lot of stories where things go wrong with your health. Yeah. And I want to make sure we say you have benefited from so many competent, intelligent, brilliant, compassionate medical professionals. So many, yeah. And, you know, the, the story of the routine checkup where everything went well and they caught something way early that never became a problem isn't really a story, but right. it happens a lot. And, a lot, yeah. You know, the thing that I think still, if anything, n nags me about this story mm -hmm. is that after you left the care of this doctor and got a new one, you were not hospitalized ever again for drug reaction problems. After these months in the hospital and these terrible incidents, going to emergency rooms, all of that went away. This doctor fixed your medications and you have not spent any time in the hospital because of a bad drug reaction. True. And that during this time, you also, you lost your transplant. Yeah. And it gets at me that I don't know and sometimes wonder... If Ari had a doctor who I thought was more on top of things, could he have kept that transplant? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's an interesting point because, well, for a lot of reasons, but a number of episodes ago, uh, 
a friend of ours had written in and said, you know, you ever wonder about the what ifs? And I answered in a lot of different ways. And I didn't even, for some reason, consider this one, that this is a pretty big what if. And I truly, truly don't know. Right. The answer could be no, nothing would be different. Right. But I'd, I'd like to be able to definitively say nothing could have been helped. Yeah, I, I would like that too. Because, you know, he wasn't the only doctor on my team. There were a lot of doctors looking at a lot of things. Even going back to the long hospitalization before that, that fall semester that I ended up taking off from Central Washington, where I was having serious stomach issues. And I was like, had blood, that was, it was terrible. And if somebody had been able to say, oh, you know, Serolimus can sometimes, like really rarely, but it can sometimes do that. What if we experimented with switching that out with something else? You know, there are, you take a three drug cocktail usually for your immunosuppressants and there's sort of, there's a bunch of different drugs that they can switch out for each one of the three. And there's a lot of options in that slot and they could have switched something because they did. I have even now had a couple of different drugs in that slot for different reasons. And had they tried that then, who knows? My um, gastrointestinal system would never have been that torn up. Uh, I wouldn't have had all those blood pressure things, which probably contributed to the kidney failure. It's, on the one hand, fascinating and interesting, and on the other hand, incredibly depressing. Well, yeah, and it's one of those things where, like, I can think about it all I want, but what's done is done. And it's oh, been, yeah. And at this point, it's been done for a long time. Right. And, right. you know, your medical team now, the doctors you have, I think the world of them, I think they are so smart mm -hmm. and so on top of things and so very good at what they do. If anything bad happened to you in their care, I would feel like it was unavoidable. If if they can't help you, then there was nothing anyone could do. Yeah. I have such trust in them. <laughs> yeah. I fully agree. <laughs> yeah. They, they're terrific. And I, I, I want to agree again with what you said earlier that I have had over the course of my life, and I, you know, we're documenting a lot of big and small and medium medical problems I've had, like significant things all. And at almost every turn, except this one, I had great care. People with a passionate intellect and interest in solving what sometimes was a unique or new or very, very unusual problem. You know, there are lots of ways in which my case presents the way it's quote-unquote supposed to, like a sort of a textbook way. And there are plenty of times where it's been like, well, that's weird. Let's figure it out. And, you know, there are times where they haven't quite, but they've found a way to at least resolve the symptoms. And most of the time they've figured it out and I've been okay. And I've avoided much more serious problems. Um, lots and lots and lots of times. So many times I, I've like lost track of some of those things because they're just on it. Um, and that's been true for more than two decades. I've just been, I've been really fortunate in that way, but it's also, you know, I, I think in a way it's why I have so much trust in the medical community. I go to a doctor and my faith in them is very high because anytime I go to a doctor, they know what they're doing. And I've seen a lot of doctors and they all, or almost all, have really seemed to know what they're doing. Right. I think the moral of this story and the things that we're talking about is not that you should distrust doctors <laughs> as a class. Yeah. It's that it's important to seek second opinions 
it's important to yeah. advocate for yourself and your loved ones. Yeah. And people make mistakes in their jobs. Yeah. Even people who are excellent at their jobs make mistakes. And it's important to advocate for yourself if you think a mistake is happening. Yeah. Yeah, it is. So I think we should get back to the chronology of this story. Yeah. Okay. So they took you off this drug and you came back. <laughs> yeah. The real you, the not paranoid you yeah. over the course of several days. I don't, you know, like so many things with this episode, I have no recollection of that. What I do remember is then I was still in the hospital for at least a week, if not two, at that point, because I was, in the words of the doctors, as you have reported it, so torn up inside, I needed time to heal. And so they kept me in the hospital, and I did dialysis and hung out. Um, and you came to visit me when you could. I think at that point you have to have been back in classes and just coming down on weekends and things. Some, Yeah, at some point, yeah. Um, so we were trying to make sure we had the timeline kind of accurate before we recorded this. And I said, you know, I actually have, I have all these memories that are just terrible and scary, but I have one memory that's really positive. And it's that you had come and I was on dialysis. And as I mentioned, when we were talking about dialysis, you get a TV. And so... It was the middle of the day, and most of what was on, even on the few cable channels they had, was some daytime talk thing that I was not interested in. And we ended up for hours watching travel channel and food channel stuff together and learned all about all the different kinds of barbecue. Yeah, the history of and culture of barbecue. Yeah, the history and culture of barbecue and all the different kinds and this is one guy who does it this way, and here's a place that does it th that way. All and, the nuances of dry rub versus mop sauce. Right. And, you know, your family is from Texas, and so you had some stuff to, to add to that. And I was just fascinated. And I remember being so hungry, which was nice because I hadn't been hungry. But that, the fact that we had watched something about barbecue, I feel like for hours, was a little bit of a touchstone in our relationship for several years. Like, oh, that's right, because it's got the dry rub. And remember, we don't want to go to Carolina because they've got that thing. But <laughs> we had all this weirdly deep knowledge because it had been that time. And because I was clear for the first time mentally in a really long time that I could actually remember that stuff. Do you remember the first point in time when you, you could actually know and appreciate that your kidney had failed? No. I mean, I had to have known during that time on dialysis, but no, I have no memory of that. Because I remember telling you. Okay. What was that like? Terrible. <laughs> okay. It's the worst I've ever seen you in all the time that I've known you. The most depressed, hmm. the most in despair. You said things like, I did everything right this time. Mm-hmm. I could tell there was so much guilt and shame tied up in what happened with the first kidney, but kind of feelings of your worth tied in with this new one and that it had failed. Yeah. I think that you talked about being worried that you had let Michael down. Yeah. You were just so depressed because you were going to have to drop out of college again. Yeah. And I remember you saying, I'm never going to graduate. I'm never going to be a teacher. Mm -hmm. I'm never going to get to do any of the things in life that I want to do. And I remember I kept trying to tell you, you can and you will, and it's going to be okay. And that at that time, I kind of couldn't really reach you. And yeah. you were already mentally kind of thinking, okay, well, back on dialysis, 
back to living in my old childhood bedroom with my parents. As a disabled person, yeah. And in that moment, I I did the only thing I could think to do, which was <laughs> that I asked you to move in with me. Yeah. And mostly because I loved you, and I had been desperate to be with you all the time anyway. Mm-hmm. But also because I realized that you had been kind of living your life in this limbo state. That yeah. you, were only, you, you considered yourself only really living if you had a working transplant and you were working toward your big life goals. Yeah. And that everything else was this sort of wasted waiting time. Mm-hmm. And that something had to change and that you had to feel happy in your life now as it was. That you had to find a way to live a happy and meaningful life even though you were on dialysis, even though certain goals had to be on pause. Right. And we decided that we were going to move in together. You were going to move to Seattle, and you would get a new doctor in Seattle and a dialysis center there, mm-hmm. and that we would start that chapter. Yeah. Yeah, you kind of you threw me a lifeline that I recognized for what it was. I, Like I said, I don't remember this, but I think we probably talked about it. I think you probably made some arguments. You made the case that you just made now, and you had valid points, and I really really didn't want to go back home and live with my parents again, who I love, who I adore, who are great to live with. But it wasn't about that. It was like, I was feeling like I was close to 30. And I just, I already felt, I was going to say fairly unfairly. It's unfairly. I felt unfairly like a failure. And to continue living with my parents would have felt like still it's sort of a massive admission of failure and there's there's this other factor that i'm sort of glossing over which like i was also very in love with you i i loved the idea of living with you i thought that sounded great there were lots of things i was nervous about just kind of up and moving to a new city after being in a hospital for six weeks and all kinds of things but i thought you know what we're smart and capable we can figure that out another of my hesitations kind of, I don't know, ironically, is that there's an old joke that I've always appreciated, which is, <laughs> uh, what do you call a drummer who breaks up with his girlfriend? And the answer is homeless. And, you know, I, I've always enjoyed that joke in part because I actually knew a guy for whom that was true. <laughs> and there are some uncomfortable truths of, that are contained in it. And as much as I didn't want to continue to be a burden on my parents, I also didn't want to be a burden on you because I knew that I was going to go be a disabled person wherever I went. Um, there had, in fact, briefly been a conversation with my parents where my mom suggested, we know you don't want to come live in your bedroom again. Maybe we can find a way for you to have an apartment on your own in Portland. Um, we were all kind of aware of this idea that it was not great that I needed to have my own place. I'd been doing that for a couple of years. I'd kind of done it at Lawrence. Like it was time for me not to live with my parents anymore. And of the several options that had been considered or presented, obviously living with the woman that I, I loved and wanted to be with was by far the best one. But I didn't want to be a burden on you and, you know, on the terrible off chance that we broke up. You know, I didn't want to be, like, stranded in Seattle, um, fortunately. And, and I think we really terrified your parents. Yeah, I, I, I think we did. You know, I think that 
a lot of people will tell a story about informing their significant other's parents, oh, we're moving in together. Yeah. And that maybe they might overreact or have a bad reaction because of traditional morals and you should not cohabitate. <laughs> mm-hmm. And your parents had no problem with that. <laughs> yeah. And as I look back now with my perspective now, mm-hmm. I feel like I think more the way they did than <laughs> the way that I did at the time, which is, oh, 20-year-old Laura, you have no idea what you're getting into. Yeah, well, I mean, we kind of didn't. And we, we kind of did, though. I did in a certain way, but I think with all of this, you don't know until you're really doing it. There's no way you can really know. There are things that I feel like I didn't really know what I had gotten myself into until years later. Maybe in some ways there are things I don't know that I've gotten myself into until last year fully. Sure, yeah, right. I was so happy that we were going to live together. Yeah, me too. And most of it was about the big life event stuff Mm -hmm. and the being happy stuff. But there was a part of me that was really happy at that point to be getting you away from that doctor. Mm, Okay. And I think that this experience really etched certain things into my character. Okay. I am so protective of you. Yeah, that's true. You know, seeing you in that incredibly vulnerable state where all these things were happening to you and you had no power or even awareness. Mm -hmm. And I felt like I had to fight for you. I had to get you off whatever this medication was. I had to find the right doctor. Mm. That even now, you're a fully capable, autonomous person. But whenever anybody even says something casually insensitive to you, I feel my hackles go up. I feel like Mm. I'm just ready to fight for you. And that never, that just doesn't go away. Yeah. But I think we should move into the Seattle chapter of your life Mm -hmm. later. Yeah. And we've run a little long, so I'm not going to do any listener mail. Okay. But I'm just going to ask you my final question, which is, Ari, how are you feeling today? (laughs) I've I've, I've been better. Um, Not just because this was rough to talk about, but I'm really cautious about a lot of things for obvious reasons, especially with my immune system suppressed. There's tons of things I think about all the time in protecting myself. This next week is the official back-to-school week in the NYC DOE, and so I've been going into work to get my room and everything set up. And as part of that, I pulled out a trumpet to play it a little bit and hear how it sounded in the room, kind of remind myself of that, and just get used to the swing of things for doing demos for my students. And this particular trumpet had not been cleaned last spring along with the other trumpets. I thought it had, but it had not. And I didn't realize that until after I played it. And so any tiny little thing that had just been in there had had all summer to kind of grow. And so that afternoon I started feeling in my lungs like, oh no, I just gave myself something. You know, so I cleaned that trumpet out. It's all clean and everything, but I have a little respiratory cold something and I'm better now because that was like Tuesday, but I have a, I've had a cough for most of the week and I feel kind of dumb. <laughs> um, but I'm, um, I'm on the mend in that way. And I'm also, you know, pretty stoked to be starting another school year. Cool. Yeah. If you want to send us an email, you can contact the KidneyCast, KidneyCast at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook, facebook.com slash KidneyCast. We are on Twitter at KidneyCast. 
All KidneyCast episodes and show notes are available on my website, lauramorris.com, L-A-R-R-A-M-O-R-R-I-S.com. Thank you so much for talking to me, Ari. Sure, thank you. And thank you to everyone for listening. Mm-hmm.